Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Jess Clark. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Jess Clark, one of the co-hosts here on the channel. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Dr. Carolyn Day, an associate professor at Furman University, about her new book, Consumptive Chic, a History of Beauty, Fashion, and Disease, published in 2017 by Bloomsbury. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here to chat with you today. So um, I thought we'd begin the conversation by you telling us a bit about yourself and your academic history and how you came to this subject. Absolutely. So um, I had a little bit of an odd trajectory into this project and into my career as a historian. I actually started life as a microbiologist. Um, I did my undergrad at uh, Louisiana State University. And um, I did a double major in microbiology and history. Um, I really had no intention of being a historian. Um, but I found sort of by the time I was halfway through my career as a microbiologist, I was a little bored. And there was something I really just was more fascinated with the ways in which disease played out in the human condition rather than simply in the lab. Um, and so I began sort of investigating the ability to sort of move into my other love, which was history. Um, so I worked for a couple of years in science and worked for a, about a year and a half in history and then decided to sort of put my two loves together. Um, I did my master's in history and philosophy of science and medicine at Cambridge and then my PhD at, in British history at Tulane in New Orleans. Um, and so I was actually quite excited because while I was exploring my connections between sort of uh, science and history is where I sort of stumbled across the thing that became this book. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that, about the the genesis of this book and how your attention um, became uh, turned to the relationship between consumption and fashion and beauty? Certainly. So um, when I began my sort of training in history, philosophy of science and medicine, I kept running across references to tuberculosis or consumption, as it was called, being an easy and beautiful death. Um, and although there seemed to be a persistent scholarly idea of this, and it was being sort of brought out quite prolifically in the 19th century, Having come at it from a science background, it really wasn't in keeping with what I understood biologically about the disease. And I was intrigued. I thought, how is it possible that something that is really not that easy a death and is really pretty unpleasant could be sort of characterized so persistently in this way? And uh, so I was really quite interested and I began sort of combing down the path. Um, and I figured if there is a link to beauty, and there certainly was, there also must be some sort of a link to fashion. And so I really became interested in doing this as my doctoral project. 
Um, but when I went into it, you know, with the, the eagerness of a graduate student thinking I had a nice tightly defined project, uh, I thought it would be maybe a project on about a 20 year span. And as I delved deeper and deeper into it, I realized it's a much larger phenomenon. It's something that that sort of is more of an 80 year um sort of connection to fashion. The connection to beauty persists sort of longer beyond the connection to fashion, but that, that sort of interplay with fashion and the disease is something that really is prominent and persistent from about 1780 to about 1850. And, and in speaking of the book itself, um, you, do, you chart this, this shifting soci- sociocultural significance of consumption in this period and its relationship to class and gender and beyond. And I mean, I think one of the things that you do so well in this book is that you keep track um, for us all of these multiple ideas of what tuberculosis or consumption was and what it looked like um, in both sort of medical and more general um, uh, public discourses. So before we get much further into that, can you just tell us about some of the general features of the disease and how it was understood? I mean, I know this is a very big question, but how it was understood in the um, 18th and early 19th centuries? Certainly. So um, one of the, my sort of frustrations when I first started this project was really trying to wrap my head around what was the medical understanding of the disease. And as I delved into the secondary literature, there were pieces of it, but I couldn't find a comprehensive explanation of why we could have a beautiful dying consumptive maiden at the same time we could have sort of angles consumptive hollow-eyed ghosts. And so that was something that I really wanted to reconcile and I really wanted to understand. And so it really took me some time to and, and trawling through a large number of treatises on tuberculosis. So I probably read close to 200 different treatises on tuberculosis over the period from about 1670 to through this sort of advent of germ theory, the late 19th century, trying to get a real sense of how the disease function and how it shifted um, and how these understandings could coexist. And so um, on the whole, uh, toward the end of the 18th century, and this, of course, is a gross generalization, but um, at at the end of the 18th century, we begin to see the rise of what we would call nervous disorders. And, And this is not nervous disorders in the same way we think of 19th century hysteria, but the idea that all diseases in the 18th century begin to have a nervous component. Um, And they are a function of the proper or improper um, functioning of the nervous system. And so the idea is that on an anatomical level, um, diseases have some connection to the nervous system. And so tuberculosis in particular um, and other sorts of chronic illnesses increasingly become intertwined with that functioning of the nervous system. So the nervous system, depending on which scholar you sort of followed in the 18th century, um, there were a, a number of people sort of arguing about what that really looked like. But we begin to see the rise of something that you would consider to be a more refined sort of disease. And these sorts of diseases uh, tend to be chronic. Um, and they tend to be characterized, at least in the, their sort of middle and upper class incarnations, as being constitutional in construction. So anchored in the person's sort of innate constitution. And so um, 
tuberculosis, insanity, gout, for instance, all sort of are productive, uh, are coming from the same place and are activated in different ways. So you could have it, this sort of hereditary taint, for lack of a better way to put it, um, would run through a family. And so increasingly, um, these diseases are seen as inherited, or the disease is not inherited, but the actual constitution is inherited. You inherit a predisposition, and then your lifestyle could then activate it in a variety of ways. Um, and so consumption in particular becomes uh, very heavily kind of involved in this discourse. And this is why we can see something like um, very refined upper class women dying sort of of consumption, um, and in the same family, it was believed that, um, you know, gout, for instance, happened to the male in the family, but, oh, well, you know, my sisters were consumptive, but I got gout in later life. And it is all because of this sort of refined hereditary um, nervous system that we all inherited. Well, I know that I can speak for um, other readers as well when I say that we really appreciate you going through 600 medical treaties on our behalf and putting it together in this really comprehensive way for your readers. So thank you for that. In connection with this, then, you um, were gesturing to the ways that the disease was tied to um, upper and middle class femininity and um, upper and middle class female um, sufferers in particular ways. Um, so can you speak a little bit more about this and the ways that I, you, you talk about the ways that consumption featured differently across social classes. Um, but what were the specific effects in the ways that um, female sufferers of this particular elite class were um, configured in, in the sort of medical and popular imagination? Certainly. Um, so one of the things that I, I found quite interesting and um, that the disease is actually treated in the medical as well as in sort of the social literature uh, that deals with it as an incredibly different disease, depending on the class of the victim, shall we say. So um, it is always seen or pretty significantly seen as um, sort of being denoted by beauty in its upper class female victims. Um, it is also seen as connoting male genius in its upper class male victims. But among the lower classes, it is actually never seen as a hereditary disorder. It's actually seen as a different, um, usually it's characterized as scrofula and is very rarely seen as attractive. Um, so there are no sort of connections to aesthetically pleasing representations in the in the lower classes or in the working classes. So it's actually treated very differently uh, as a disease. So it's treated as sort of a hereditary disorder among women. And as I mentioned, it is seen as you inherit a predisposition. And so the way in which you can de determine whether or not a woman is predisposed to consumption is by virtue of her aesthetic appearance. And so it's interesting because consumption actually enhances those things that were already established as attractive in women. So the symptomology includes things like a thin torso, um, pale, almost translucent skin. Um, the blue of the veins become very, very prominent and they're characterized as almost marbling upon the skin. Uh, the eyes actually become sort of quite 
big and bright and dilated. They thought that it made your teeth white and that your eyelashes would be luxurious and your hair would be glossy. Um, it also was characterized by something called a wing-backed appearance. And so we see the, as, as the emaciation progresses in the disease, that women's clavicles become quite prominent and also um, their shoulder blades would sort of pop up. And it was usually described both in medical treatises as well as in social commentary as if a bird about to take flight. Um, and so we see these descriptions and these are descriptions of the hereditary predisposition as well as the disease. So the, the difference in sort of description tends to be on the sort of intensity of the symptoms. So you can look at a woman and say she is attractive and delicate and she is more likely to be predisposed to come down with consumption than a woman who is less attractive. Um, and so there's a very interesting dichotomy there and it's seen as sort of a diagnostic marker. Beauty is actually seen as a diagnostic marker for the disease process. And so in those women who are pre hereditarily predisposed, because consumption was seen as a death sentence, there was a hesitancy to actually diagnose them in, as in a full-blown consumption, which was always um, fatal. But instead, this idea was they were predisposed and you must do everything you could to forestall the development of the disease. And there were innumerable exciting causes that could create the disease in those hereditarily predisposed. And so the list is amazing in terms of what could possibly cause consumption. So certainly, you know, tragic love affair, disappointment in love, consumption. You played the harp, consumption. You read the wrong novel, consumption. You danced too vigorously at the ball, consumption. Um, in addition, you know, you went from the crowded hot ballroom to the cold carriage, consumption. And so um, it's, it's a very convenient way of explaining something that didn't really have a unified understanding of the illness. And it, it accounted for all the circumstances in which the disease actually appeared. That's so fascinating. And you also note um, the ways that this becomes entangled with um, more general notions about um, elite um, elite illness among, or sorry, illness amongst elite women more generally. The idea of women being elite women being of a particular um, kind of disposition in terms of um, you know kind of bodily health and robustness. So can you talk about how these ideas about um, consumptive elite feminine bodies um, were kind of uh, connected with other more general ideas about the elite classes and, you know, leisure and, um, as I said, robustness? Certainly. So there is um, sort of an increasing connection beginning in the 18th century and moving certainly into the 19th century of associating um, female beauty with fragility. And um, so obviously the most famous example of this is, you know, Edmund Burke's um, discussion of, you know, women being beautiful in, um, in distress, right? And they learn to lisp and they learn to totter, right? And so there's this sort of idea that it is fashionable to be unwell or to at least seem unwell. Um, and there are lots of categories in the 18th century of what we would call fashionable diseases. So diseases that in one way or another are privileged. So gout certainly has been characterized as the patrician malady and is associated primarily with sort of a refined sort of living. 
Uh, and consumption gets sort of turned into this as well and, and sort of, you know, bound up in it, if you will, um, in a very sort of significant way. And it, it's this sort of idea of that women sort of there's a fashion for illness among the upper uh, classes is so widespread that it's actually even used as an example of the necessity for the Great Reform Act in 1832. People, you know, sort of are complaining in the periodical literature and saying, you know, who has ever heard of a woman of fashion wearing the hue of health upon her cheeks? Why it would be the death of her pretensions, right? Uh, and so there's this real sort of pushback against what they see as this artificiality of um, fashionable fragility. But tuberculosis, because it is the product of sort of an internal constitution, and it is a very natural way in which women become fragile, um, and it is also the way in which um, those things that are already established as attractive, so rosy cheeks, for instance, and ruby lips. So you constantly are running a low grade, what's called a hectic fever with tuberculosis. And so these women have very pale skins and rosy complexions and bright, sparkling eyes. And so this all of a sudden becomes the natural way in which uh, women can be fashionably fragile. Uh, and it's not necessarily intentionally, people are not going out to try and get consumption, but there it is quite interesting because a lot of the beauty practices that are prescribed to obtain those things in women. So, oh, um, if you go walk amongst the dew in the morning, you will have like a pale complexion. So there's some interesting beauty manuals in the um, 1820s and 30s who sort of talk about these various prescriptions. Um, these are the same things that actually were also being complained about by physicians as causing the disease. And, and there's a real discussion about that women can only be beautiful if they are healthy, but there's always an exception made in the beauty manuals, except in the case of consumption. And so they're like, even the doctor cannot, you know, help but acknowledge that the woman is improved by beauty. And we see this. Uh, so in 1825, the art of beauty actually talks about that. And he says that, you know, although we know it is the sign of fatal illness, that um, even the doctor acknowledges that a woman's complexion is beautified by the disease process. Of consumption and it's discussed in actually like a manual on female beauty and the descriptions in the treatises as well of females suffering the medical treatises of females suffering from the disease are in some respects rather poetic and very sort of um, complementary in a way that one would not anticipate something that is an indication of fatal illness um, to be so yeah and you also connect um, the disease and, as you say, the sort of um, aesthetic properties of the disease to uh, shifting trends more fashionably or material trends um, in terms of particular fashions. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about that relationship? Certainly. So the fashions, and this was the thing that was really quite interesting to me. Um, so, I, I mean, obviously the mechanics of beauty, I think, are quite important. Um, and, and these have certainly been touched upon, but nobody really investigated that link to fashion. And, and initially, when I, as I mentioned, when I first started this project, I thought this would be something that dealt with maybe the 1830s and 40s. And as I began investigating, not only did the understandings of the disease lead me backwards, but the fashions also did as well. And so there are, um, there's a really interesting sort of dialogue between the medical community 
and um, sort of the community in, involved in sort of promoting fashion and sort of what are the complaints about fashion. There are, there are consistent complaints about fashions as being sort of either pro- as being productive of the disease, which I think is very interesting. So, and the, the one that most people are familiar with certainly is the idea of tight lacing. And I'll certainly talk about that in a moment. But if you go back a little bit, um, really into the sort of rise of neoclassical dress, uh, physicians are complaining that women are dying because they are wearing insubstantial and filmy dresses that do not protect them from the vagaries of the English weather. And so there are, there's sort of this widespread acknowledgement that women's clothing is actually causing them to die because it is not serving, serving its sort of proper function. So that is not protecting women. Um, and so there is that, uh, but there are also other instances where there's a concern over the dress train, for instance, in neoclassical dress, so that these long dress trains are wafting up large clouds of dust and debris, and that not only is it killing women, but they're also like taking out the people at the ball with them, or in St. James Park, that, you know, they say, you know, ladies, please, you know, have care for our lungs, think about more than just yourself, right? Um, And so they talk about sort of the even just dress training being, you know, not only detrimental to those wearing them, but also to those around them. So there's there's sort of a consistent element in which um, fashions are accorded responsibility for causing the disease. But interestingly, there are also consistent elements in which the disease is either highlighted or emulated in the fashions. Um, And so makeup practices certainly uh, replicate that. We see um, women wearing makeup in uh, sort of the late 18th and early 19th centuries that replicate that very sort of pale skin and rosy complexion. There are complaints about women sort of drawing on the the veins um, to sort of mimic that marbled appearance. But interestingly, for me at least, um, one of the things I was quite surprised by was in the neoclassical dress um, that there, the dress gets very, very low in the back, very kind of comes down and really will sort of highlight and show off that wing-backed appearance that is so characteristic of consumption. And not only do we see this in the actual sort of fashions, but it is also really highlighted in the in the representations of those fashions. So we begin to see, so if you look at the fashion plates from the period, increasingly there are images of women where in the front they sort of shade in the cleavage, and in the back they shade in the posterior furrow, in a very significant way, and they sort of really highlight those those backbones and those those you know shoulder blades that would have been sort of raised in an appearance. And there's a lot of pushback against it. There's this constant complaint about what they call quote the disgusting fashion for showing the backbones. And so for about 20 years, there's this really kind of um, back and forth in the literature about this particular. Um, fashionable affectation. Um, and uh, one of my favorite sort of quotes that I, I sort of stumbled across that just kind of summed it up for me and also just makes me giggle as a historian. I always like to find these sorts of things. Um, and so they really talked about so that there's a strange practical paradox of dress um, and that the chest is exposed and the hollow of the col- collarbones um, and the ill-covered shoulder blades that the surgeon might have studied 
osteology from these living anatomies. And this is actually like a, a fashionable, like common social commentator complaining about the dress of women, neoclassical dress. Um, and so it is, it's a really interesting sort of discussion. And, and it really this sort of complaint about this showing off the shoulder blades, um, for lack of a better way, kind of goes on for close to 20 years. As we move into sort of the uh, away from neoclassical dress and we move into sort of the 1830s and 40s, uh, the, the corset, of course, becomes one of the primary focuses of the medical discourse uh, of, of the way in which dress can cause disease. And consumption is certainly not the only disease that was thought to be produced by corseting. Um, but the thing that is quite intriguing to me and the thing that is, I think, quite novel and something that increasingly, I think, requires a little bit more investigation. I actually am really quite interested in, in looking at um, the 1840s fashions as a whole, because they seem to be sort of missing a bit when you look at fashion histories. And, and I think in part because we weren't really sure what they were doing. They, they are not the most attractive of fashion, to be fair. Um, and they're not very comfortable looking. If you look at fashion plates from the 1840s, all the women are very sort of sad and hunched over um, and um, very sort of droopy looking, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, and in the 1840s, the corsets are not just for bringing the waist in. And that's really the sort of difference between, say, the 1830s and the 40s. There's complaints that corseting is causing disease. But... In the 1840s, the corsets as a whole not just pull in the waist, they narrow the torso. There's very little sort of movement between the waist and the top of the chest. They're quite armored in, in a very significant way. And when they were put on the body and actually been sort of investigating originals, but also looking at sort of the value of replica and sort of rethinking some of this as well, and looking at where the wear patterns are on these originals and sort of thinking through how they this really shapes the body mechanically and looking at the structure of the dresses as well. And what we've been finding and what I've been looking at really sort of reinforces these ideas. So for instance, those 1840s corsets are, are quite, you know, they have room for the hips. They are straight, almost straight from the waist all the way up to under the armpit. Um, the way they are structured, they pop the shoulder blades up over the back of the corset. And when they do that, they force the shoulders to round forward and they force the arms to sort of come in in sort of an, an O at the front, right? So you have your arms in front of you and it's a natural thing. The corsets also tip the, hip, the hips forward. And so you get this very interesting sort of slumped appearance that is characteristic. Um, and you can certainly see it in 1840s fashion plates, but the corsets really do that. In addition, the way the dresses are constructed, um, the shoulders are dropped down. Um, and so women in the 1840s really couldn't lift their arms above a right angle. Um, and they really are sort of imprisoned in their own dresses in some ways. Now, although... Um, 1840s dresses really do sort of distort the body. They weren't really meant to. They were supposed to articulate the truth of the body. Um, and in the 1840s, there's this real sort of backlash against anything that is artificial. And as a consequence of that, the beauty that came 
naturally from consumption becomes something that is reflective of the inner character of the victim. So by the 1840s, even medical physicians are saying that women who are consumptive, um, it is a reflection of their, their character as good human beings. Um, and so there's this amazing clinical lecture in which they're sort of teaching about consumption in the 1840s. And they say, you know, the artist may have it right. They may be true in that the good die young and that selfishness and hardness of character are, are less likely to be found in those hereditarily predisposed to consumption than in the people who have other kinds of diseases or who don't have this disease. And so these 1840s fashions are really supposed to be the articulation of the inner character of the woman. And if you are consumptive, you are sort of internally good as well as externally beautiful. So the idea is that the, the internal character is read in legible lines upon the countenance on the face. And, uh, and so we see this real elevation of consumption as an attractive aesthetic and one that you shouldn't mimic. You should not find through makeup practices. For instance, there's a real pushback against wearing makeup or at least overtly wearing makeup. If you get caught out wearing makeup, that's a whole other problem. Um, but the dresses in the way in which they're cut actually physically force the healthy body into the exact same shape as the diseased body in the 1840s, um, which to me was just unbelievably striking. So not only are we seeing corsets that were thought to produce the disease and medical treatises and discourses that really connect the disease to a positive character in women as well as a positive aesthetic, but that the way in which the dresses are constructed physically creates that look in women who may or may not have the illness already. That's so fascinating, the connection between um, the material and the ideological and the way that that's teased out. I mean, to be honest, um, in terms of those uh, fashion plates of the 1840s, with, as you say, the slump posture, um, I used to think that it was simply um, a kind of artistic choice. You know, it was a certain stylistic trend in that moment. So, I mean, it's just intriguing to hear more about the fact that it was actually uh, the material conditions of the corsets inducing that type of posture. Oh, I agree. I absolutely, yeah, I I certainly used to think the same thing when I first approached those fashion plates, right? And this idea, fashion plates are certainly representational. We can't take them as sort of incredibly true to form. But one of the things that, and there's some really interesting scholarly work now that's being done in fashion history um, about the value of replica and what can we do? How do we restore form and function to a garment? Um, and one of the things I, I was involved in, um, uh, a fashion exhibition at the uh, York Castle Museum a couple of years ago. They were really interested in um, at sort of, it was a fashioning the body exhibition. And for the 1840s, they were interested in sort of highlighting this consumptive shape. And so as part of sort of the opening for this, um, I worked with a, a costumer in the UK. And um, we also did sort of an opening um uh, a costume, a historic costume exhibition to help with the opening ceremonies for this particular um, uh, fashion exhibition at York Castle. And as part of this, we made a replica of the Manchester corset that's in the book. And when I put it on the person, um, and obviously, you know, it, it, it wasn't exactly sized, although we are really quite intrigued to see what it will do when we make an, a completely accurate, perfectly sized replica. But um, 
it did everything I had been arguing textually. And so it was that moment that um, as historians, we don't always get right. This, this sort of laboratory sort of epiphany of like, Ooh, all the things I've been arguing are actually, Oh, I can see it in a whole different way. And so it was a really sort of special moment and really made me think to go back and look at wear patterns on the original corsets and to look where the pressure points are and to think about that anatomically. And and so that's something else I'm just sort of teasing out on general principles because I think it's interesting. Um, and and so, yeah, I, I really think that there's something to be said for that and, and different ways in which we can learn more from the material culture when we bring it into concert with the textual evidence. And it's really interesting how you characterize that experience as it uh, as a laboratory, you know, hearkening back to your your old life, your your previous career. Um, so, in keeping with that, can you um, absolutely? To, <laughs> can you speak to us a little bit about um, working in both the history of medicine and the history of fashion? Um, what was this process like? I think you know one of the um, major um, uh, successes of the book are the ways that you're incorporating uh, medical moral moral discourses with the history of fashion. So, as you know, as a historian, um, you know, approaching both fields, um, how did this come about, and what were your experiences in doing this? Yeah, so I mean, it was really quite it was quite a task um, because. I really wanted it to be very interdisciplinary and, you know, it, it is a British history. It is a history, a fashion history. It is a medical history. It's a social history and a cultural history. And so I really wanted to try to do justice to all parts of that. I think in part because all of my research is really sort of geared at lived experience. I'm very interested in trying to kind of piece all that puzzle together to understand what that means. So, you know, if we read in a novel that, you know, this beautiful woman is dying of consumption, for me, I was like, do people buy into this? And I really wanted to know if they buy into it, then how do they employ it? How do they use it? And how does it affect your everyday life in ways that maybe um, I hadn't thought out? And so I won't lie, it was a bit intimidating to take on those various disciplines and to feel like I was tr- I tried very hard to do each of those disciplines justice um, because the story doesn't make sense. Fashion does not happen in a vacuum and it doesn't make sense unless you understand the cultural sort of environment in which it is developing and what it is reacting to and what it is accommodating. Um, And, you know, gender is part of that story and, you know, disease is part of that story. And the social changes in Britain are part of that story as well. So one of the things that I found really interesting is that, after 80 years of people pushing back and pushing back and pushing back against this, doctors are saying, like, your clothing is killing you. Social commentators are like, absolutely stop it. And women are still sort of garbing themselves in clothing that was thought to be ruinous to their health and, and, and fatal. And, um, and one of the things that I found really interesting was sort of the way in which uh, new sort of movements, both in history of medicine, but also just in in general in British society are changing that discourse. So for 80 years, there's this connection to fashion and almost overnight it disappears. 
And and the connection to, to a beautiful dying consumptive is something that continues, but the connection to fashion is broken. And that connection to fashion is broken in the later part of the 1840s and early part of the 1850s, in part because the discourse shifts from respectable women to fallen women. Um, and at the same time that that discourse is shifting to fallen women, um, the there is sort of the increasing... Uh, visibility of consumption among the poor. And it can no longer be ignored because it becomes the focus of the sanitarium movement um, and the sanitary awakening and the sort of public health, the increasing concern with public health in the mid part of the century. And so it becomes something that can no longer be ignored as and, and treated as separate and different. And once that connection to sort of respectability is broken, the fashion disappears almost overnight. Um, and it's quite interesting because one of the things that I found is that even in museum collections, it's quite difficult to find um, 1840s corsets, for instance. Um, the, the V&A with its amazing and immaculate collection has one, just one. You know, um, when you think about that, and you think about all the other examples of sort of underclothes that they have, the Museum of London doesn't have any, you know, and so it's really sort of interesting to think about why is there that there's not even people saving these, right? They weren't, they were sort of pushed back against so quickly and so kind of vehemently um, in the wake of that particular fashion that even the material evidence is scarce for the sort of survival of them. And in in terms of the um, material evidence, you mentioned just a moment ago that you were also deeply invested in the lived experience in relationship to um, consumption. And, um, and this certainly comes across in the book, which, you know, it not only addresses medical and moral discourses and fashion discourses, but it also includes a number of really evocative examples of lived experience, including a case study um, of the sit-ins. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, Sarah Kemble sit-ins and her daughters and their significance to your story? Certainly. Um, so, yeah, no, and that was one of the difficulties of the book is trying to find, there's not a convenient list of people who died of consumption, sadly. And so trying to tease out um, personal recollections of it and trying to think through where, you know, be creative in trying to figure out where to find these sorts of sources. And then the other problem then becomes is very often those things are performative or people don't write about them. That there are mentions of consumption, but not people really writing about their experiences with it. And so I thought it was really important to try and find um, some examples of that uh, and really try to interject the person. Um, so it's not just about sort of the fashion or the beauty or the discourse or the medical, but that these are people and these are people who are sort of accommodating these new things into their lives. They are utilizing it in the way in which they represent their illness experience. Um, and, and in sort of the process of that, I, I, I stumbled across the uh, rather rollicking good tale of um, the illness and death of two of the daughters of the dramatic actress Sarah Sidden. So Sarah Sidden had, um, she had more than two daughters, but the two daughters in question. Um, there's an elder daughter by the name of uh, Sarah Martha, and she goes by Sally. Um, and she has a younger sister by the name of Mariah. And um, Mariah had, from an early age, been sort of 
considered the more attractive of the two sisters. Um, and there was a concern for her health as a consequence of that. And um, Sally, uh, however, had formed a bit of an attachment to the portrait painter, uh, Thomas Lawrence, who obviously goes on to be the president of the Royal Academy, um, quite a famous figure in and of himself. He painted Mrs. Siddons quite a bit and spent quite a bit of time at their Greek street address. And at some point during those um, many and uh, you know visits to the Siddons family, he and Sally um, formed an attachment. And apparently on the eve of the announcement of this attachment, Lawrence changes his mind and says, oh, actually, I'm sorry, I was mistaken. I'm not really in love with you. Instead, I'm in love with your younger, more attractive 16-year-old sister, Mariah. Now, Sally steps aside. Um, Lawrence asks for Mariah's hand um, and is vehemently refused by Mariah's father. Henry Siddons is absolutely not having it. Um, one, Mariah is 16. Two, Th Thomas Lawrence's financial situation is a bit precarious at the moment, and he's not wanting anything. He doesn't want his daughter to be involved with somebody without that sort of financial wherewithal. Um, and so Mrs. Siddons decides to allow the relationship to continue, and she allows them, behind her husband's back, to carry on a clandestine relationship for three years with only sometimes their 19-year-old friend, Miss Bird, as a chaperone. Now, after three years, Mariah is getting uh, a bit unwell. She's had a, several bouts of illness, and she utilizes this as well as the understanding that a disappointment in love could be an exciting cause of consumption. And after recovering from a bout of illness, she goes to her father and she says she utilizes her bout of illness as a way of gaining his cooperation in her um, uh, pursuit of Lawrence or Lawrence's pursuit of her. Now, her father agrees to the match. Um, they make a formal announcement. He settles Lawrence's debts. Now, Lawrence has been chasing Mariah for three years. And within a month of their formal engagement, he's like, so actually, I was mistaken. I'm really still in love with Sally. And so he's sort of every girl's current nightmare of a bad boyfriend, but apparently this is completely okay at the time. Um, not entirely, obviously. But uh, so he um, throws Mariah over. And at this time, Mariah is really in getting increasingly unwell. Her family sends her off to Clifton, to the hot wells, um, to take the waters. And so the Bristol hot wells were considered um, a, an important treatment for consumption. Um, it, so, you know, you would go to Bath for dyspeptic complaints and Bristol for consumption. So she goes and she is um, taking sort of in the spa culture. She is attending balls. Um, her mother is off on a theater tour and her, her sister is with her at at the time. And she and Lawrence, kind of Sally and Lawrence, strike up their uh, relationship yet again. And Sally is, is, is not 100% um, convinced of his fidelity. And she says, you know, basically, if you do this again, this would be my death. Um, and Sally herself had um, a constitutional complaint. She had what was labeled spasmodic asthma. 
and um, had had several bouts of illness as well. And so she, in some respects, would have been the more likely candidate. But because she was considered less attractive than Mariah, they were more concerned about Mariah's constitutional health than Sally's. Now, um, as Mariah gets sicker and sicker and sicker, she becomes convinced that she should prevent the marriage between Sally and Lawrence. And she believes she actually lays her illness, her consumption, her full-blown sort of illness at Lawrence's door. She basically says that like he has caused her death. Now, as she gets to the sort of point where she is probably definitely not going to recover, um, the friend, Mrs. Pennington, who she's staying with, writes to her mother and, and lets her know that you know, this is not a good situation. And so Sally is sent to Clifton to help um, and to sort of be there until Mrs. Siddons can get free from her theater commitments and also get there. Now, Lawrence chases them to uh, Clifton and introduces himself to Mrs. Pennington in a letter and says, you may have heard of me, and then sort of tries to push back against the accusations of the role he plays in Mariah's illness. And the interesting thing is because of Mrs. Siddons being away, because of this sort of um, interesting relationship situation, um, we have a glimpse into Mariah's sort of last um, hours, obviously filtered through other people's um, perspectives, but still it is quite interesting. Mrs. Pennington writes uh, of, of Mariah in sort of her last hours saying that she... Um, achieves a beauty that the painter or the artist could not reach and that, you know, she was nothing but grace and beauty in her final moments. Um, and so she really puts this sort of sentimental gloss on, on what will become the death of a very sad young girl. Um, and so Mariah tries very hard and actually backs her sister into a corner and forces a deathbed promise from her sister that she will, quote, never be the wife of Mr. L., and Sally is, is, tries to not make the promise, but in the end um, says if it's the only way that you can be at peace, then she would do it. And, and Mariah requires that of her. And when Mariah dies, um, the letters of her friends sort of talking about it are, are really sort of participate in this dialogue of like the beauty of the consumptive death. Um, one of the friends actually says that the death of Nelson would not be so lamented as the death of Mariah Siddons. And this is the death of Nelson right after the Battle of the Nile would not be so lamented as like the death of Mariah Siddons, which is just sort of this outrageous sort of um, overblown sentiment. But some of the, the letters also kind of acknowledge that there is um, that they are participating in this and, and say, well, actually, it's because she was young and pretty. Um, and so there's a real sort of conscious wrapping Mariah up in sort of this blanket of sentimentality. Um, in the end, sadly, Sally does uh, keep her promise and she steps away from Lawrence. Um, and she pines for him. Um, and she herself will die a few years later, also probably of consumption that we you know, cannot know for sure. Certainly we cannot posthumously diagnose people. Um, and uh, so it, it is quite an interesting uh, sort of window. And one of the things that I found even more intriguing was 
Mrs. Siddons, after the death of Sally and after the death of Mariah, was concerned about her youngest daughter, Cecilia. And she said, you know, she is beautiful like Mariah. And that that gives her cause for concern that she may also be predisposed to consumption. In the end, no, Cecilia thankfully is not. And she will live to a, a, a pretty good ripe old age. So there is that. It's such a fascinating case. And it it vivifies so many of the major themes in the book in um, this one you know, very evocative um, instant or example. So um, um, it was really fascinating to read. Um, so Carolyn, I've taken up a lot of your time. So I want to thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your new book. Um, it's, it's an important contribution to our understandings of the history of medicine and fashion and bodies. And I think it makes really important um, interventions in terms of the ways that we understand them in tandem in this moment. Um, so before we go, here at New Books Network, we traditionally end our discussion by asking what you're working on next. Certainly. Well, I actually have... Um two book projects that I'm working on simultaneously, which I don't necessarily recommend, but it's been quite fun. Um, so actually my next book is uh, under contract with the University of Toronto Press, and it's going to be, um, it's a micro history on illness in the 18th century and sort of the social uses of illness, in particular um, using a death from consumption as a way of casting blame and revenge upon um, a young woman's parents, which is quite fun. And um, the other project I'm working on, I'm actually really interested, um, and again, it just goes back to lived experience, uh, I'm really interested in sort of what that holistic experience of illness is. Um, even today, we have expectations for those people who are suffering from terminal illness or chronic illness. You know, don't, don't be mad, keep your spirits up, like it makes me really uncomfortable for you to talk like that about it. So um, these performative aspects uh, and expectations are certainly nothing new. And um, so I'm trying to do a 360 degree look at one person's illness experience. So what is does it mean to be an invalid? And how is that sort of um, illness represented and performed in uh, different ways uh, to different audiences. So I'm actually looking at um, the illness and death of the youngest daughter of King George III, Princess Amelia, um, who is ill off and on from the 1790s, but then actually um, dies ostensibly of tuberculosis, but again, we don't know, um, in 1810. Um, and because of who she is, there is the possibility to kind of get access to um, the individual's ideas about her own illness, um, her physicians looking in, the family members and friends, and because of who she is, sort of a public, you know, because she is a public figure and in the public eye, sort of how can we think about um, the ways in which those are also thought of um, in a broader context? And uh, I have been really fortunate to, to kind of find examples whereby Amelia will give one sort of um, description of a particular day's events or a particular procedure she was forced to endure. Um, and her sister Mary would give a very different um, uh, account of the same event. And so uh, Amelia is sort of trying to be 
resigned in her suffering and downplaying the sort of uh, unpleasantness of the particular procedure. And Princess Mary writes, and she's like, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. It was horrible. She suffered so terribly. And so we can begin to get moments of, of, of how these things are performed differently for different audiences. So depending on who Amelia is writing to, depends on how sort of maybe honest or not you know, or how she sort of speaks about her illness in different ways. So I'm really excited to, to kind of pursue and continue with that one as well. Well, both new books sound excellent. And we uh, will look forward to speaking to you about them a couple of years from now once uh, they've been published. Well, thank you so much. And I really have enjoyed speaking with you. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my work. Thank you so much for coming. And um, thank you to all the listeners of the new books in British studies. We will talk to everyone next time. 